Blog Talk Radio. J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. These days, I'm doing three shows a week, and uh, for those of you who receive our newsletter, are keeping pace and track with what's going on here at A Better World. Those of you who have been tuning in know that Don Beck of Spiral Dynamics fame was on the television show at 7 o'clock on Monday evening talking to us about that brilliant human typology, a way of understanding ourselves through our tribal memes, our levels of evolutionary development based on, oh, any number of different variables, and the way we move through those memes, those stages of development per a number of very interesting psychologists, all based on the work of Dr. Claire Graves, of Union College, and uh, we've had Don on a few times. And then at 9 o'clock on the same evening, we then interviewed Bill Benenson, the director of an incredible film called Dirt! Exclamation point. And if you haven't seen it, you really would want to. It's based on the book by uh, Brooklyn uh, Raised and uh, a reared gentleman named Bill Logan, who wrote the book called Dirt, The Ecstatic Skin of the Earth. Beautiful film, very, believe it or not, funny, even while telling us about the incredibly difficult situation we are in, all based on a relationship to dirt. We would say soil, or we would say earth, and both of those are also true. But uh, dirt is sort of a, a rich word that is played with and bandied about a lot through the, through the show. And uh, you can go to our website, abetterworld.tv, and tune in to it in case you missed it Monday night. And tonight we have the, uh, the honor and the privilege of speaking with Rabbi Simcha Weinberg about a subject that, well like a lot of our shows here at A Better World, are very poignant, very sobering, very important. And we do what we can to treat the subjects with the delicacy they deserve, uh, the sobriety they deserve, but at the same time with as much of a light touch as possible because in some ways, if we didn't, 
might start crying and not stop. So that's the kind of work um, my dear friend now, Rabbi Simcha Weinberg, whose name, by the way, means joy. So every time I say his name, I feel a little joy. Well, Rabbi Weinberg is a very interesting man. Not only does he have advanced degrees from a rabbinical school in Baltimore, where he has uh, graduated with both a doctorate and a master of Talmudic law, he has been organizing work around the subject of abuse in families, emotional, verbal, physical, sexual, as it occurs in families really across the board, but with particular emphasis of religious communities where the stories are oftentimes very well hidden. Uh, A lot of the actions are covert. They do not match and meet up with and keep pace with the teachings of the various respective religions, be it Judaism, Christianity, or beyond. And so there's this intense tension, a powerful polarity that he addresses routinely. And as a result, he has helped so many children and so many families deal with these delicate issues that uh, are, as I said, very sobering. And he's going to speak with us just momentarily about this powerful work that he's been doing, helping to bring healing to literally thousands of people in different parts of the country, with emphasis again in the New York metropolitan region. So, Rabbi Weinberg, are you on with me right now? I am on with you, Mitch. Can you hear me? Shalom, shalom. Welcome to a better world. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Truly a pleasure. Absolutely. So, look, this is, I gave an introduction to the subject. We all know that The subject of abuse is a worldwide issue that shows up in every family having nothing or little to do with a respective religion of birth. It's something that has occurred generationally and is probably one of the biggest social, human, personal, family problems that we have ever seen. It goes as far as, of course, incest and uh, the abuse of power and authority when it comes to people of authority, be they rabbis or priests or the like in respect, or a father or a mother, for that matter, in a family. So tell me, what is it that brought you into this in the first place, Rabbi, and what have you been doing over the course of these past years? Well... 30 years in the rabbinate makes it impossible to not be aware of the problems that are occurring in all sorts of religious families. And 30 years also allows one the perspective to see that the problems seem to be increasing 
because you, someone who was abused in the 60s and will abuse three or four kids, and those three or four kids, some of them, two of them, will become abusers, and the numbers seem to be growing. I don't think it's only because we are more aware. I'm convinced that the numbers are growing. And there's this feeling They're of growing because the incidence of it, the practice of it, is just becoming more widespread? I'm convinced it is, yes. Yes. Yeah. Do you have any sense and of why that is? Well, one is that the... Uh, you know, someone who was abused as a kid is probably is has a 50% likelihood of becoming an abuser him or herself. And then the kids they abuse are going to, you know, 50% of the Carry kids on. they abuse are going to. Yeah. So I, I believe it's increasing. It, at times it seems exponentially. Yes. And, you know, when I would travel because I had programs all over the world. This was, I found this in Russia, I found it in Britain, I found it in Israel, uh, France, Germany, and it was clear that we have to address the issue itself and we have to figure out ways to prevent it. Do you find that there are particular communities in which it seems more rampant or widespread than others? Have you been able to make any kind of discernment around those subjects? Uh, um, I believe, I mean, again, this is empirical, but it certainly seems that the more repressed a community is, the more likelihood there is of a problem occurring. And it's not just um, sexually repressed where sex is a topic that is not openly discussed. But when people are not, are trained, this is what you must believe, or you are not permitted to ask questions, or you are not permitted to look at the world and value anything in it, then people disconnect from themselves and are are often filled with rage, and that rage will destroy their marriages, and it will destroy the relationship they have with children. It will lead to emotional abuse, verbal abuse, and then, unfortunately, at times it leads to other forms of abuse as well. You know, it's so interesting, and uh, I've got to just, I really do... I should say tip my yarmulke to you. I should tip at least my hat um, because what you are doing is exemplifying a level of courage and leadership. And, of course, I want to get more into the content of what you've seen and what you do. But just from the outset, if I may just say, Rabbi, for you to be a rabbi and telling the story that you are about uh, the observations you've made, the experiences you've had inside your own community, your own Jewish community, and even further, the Orthodox community. And telling what is really going on is an act of 
courage and bravery that I just rarely see in this life. And uh, it's just something, I'm going to say it again later, but just from the outset, I, I really would like the audience to recognize what it is you're doing. It's nothing could, it's one of the hardest things to do. These are your own um, colleagues when it comes to the rabbinate uh, that are completely breaking every single uh, humane, human law, man-made law, as well as halakha, the principles of the Torah and the Talmud. It's breaking every kind of law we know. And um, to call these folks out respectfully, but with firmness, takes an act of bravery that we just don't get to see much in this life. So from the beginning, I I just have to acknowledge this what you're doing here. Well, I, appre- I appreciate your words, but anything that I am doing is actually my mother, a blessed memory. Oh. If uh, you can go to her house, neither of my parents are alive, but their house is still standing and there are bars on the window. And because my mother needed protection because she would take in abused women and their children, and she would hide them from their husbands. And she would do whatever she could to protect them. And men would come pounding on the door. She had to have an alarm installed in her house, even though she lived on a yeshiva campus. She wasn't safe. Uh, My mother started... She was the first Orthodox Rebbeton to... You know, if there's a problem, you deal with it. She yeah. she invested some money in the stock market, and she bought an apartment building, and she created a safe environment for these women, and she used her own money to do it. So I don't get any that credit. It's all my mom. I'm sorry. It's uh, it's all my mom. It's her it's example. All your mom. <laughs> Like mother, like son. That is. Oh, a, where did this happen? Where Where were you raised? And where was this yeshiva? Well, she lived in Baltimore on on the mm-hmm. campus of a yeshiva, a, a rabbinical school. My father was the dean, and he was really the only prominent rabbi to support her. I remember in the late 70s and early 80s, there were posters going up in certain communities excommunicating her for the work she was doing. Oh, my. So there's an entire Weinberg history here you're (laughs) unveiling. Yeah. Yeah. In 1989, when I was in Los Angeles, my mother told me that I had to start a warm line but I couldn't call it a hotline because the community would destroy me. So she said, start a warm line. If women are feeling stressed out, if they're a little bit frightened, don't turn it into abuse and see what happens. Uh And we started it in the end of 89, perhaps the beginning of 90, and the number of calls just the first week was overwhelming. 
we couldn't staff it. So she, you know, I called her. I said, Ma, what do I do? She said, do whatever you need to. Oh. Now, were you raised when you were growing up, Rabbi? Were you raised in the context of her doing this kind of sheltering? Was that something that you were exposed to at the time of your bar mitzvah? I was exposed to everything. We had people in and out of the house all the time. Um, From pregnant teens to kids running away from their families to women running away from their their husbands because they were terrified. Yes. So, yeah. Yes, this and this was all within the orth- This was all within the Orthodox Jewish community. Yes, although now in Baltimore, the organization that supports all Jewish women, or not all women, is called Hannah. My mother's name was Hannah, and mm-hmm. so that organization is called Hannah. My mother ran ten big, huge organizations in Baltimore with all sorts of different, you know, addressing all sorts of different problems. So Family, family-oriented abuse types of problems? She opened the, when my father was dying, literally it was, I think, six hours before he passed away, she called the meeting of some very wealthy members of the Baltimore Jewish community, And she said, I have an opportunity to buy this building, and I want to set aside this building for as a daycare center for mentally challenged adults so that their parents can have some free time, drop their kids off, Mm. and just live. And they they said, you know, Rebbitson, which is what you call the wife of a great rabbi, especially if she's a great woman herself, Yes. Can go take care of your husband. She said, I'm not leaving here until I have the money. <laughs> so she got the money. And the day after this, we dedicated my father's monument, and they, they had the ceremony dedicating this center. And a yes. woman came over to her crying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I only wish there was something we could do to be sure someone would care for our children after we die. So Uh that day, my mother started fundraising to develop a center to take care of these adults after their parents would pass away. So she heard Uh of a problem. She did something. And that's the way I grew up. So no matter what I do, there's this, I hear my mother's voice saying, do more. Right, right, right. Oh, my God. The apple doesn't fall far, does it? I wish that were true. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? It was a very healthy, very challenging imprint, but also very soul-fulfilling at the end of the day. So this hasn't been an easy life, I am sure, Rabbi, but when I imagine the children that your mother 
helped the family she helped and provided safe haven for uh, were eternally grateful because it gave them a new chance in life. And I know that just if I may share with our audience an email, uh, it doesn't, you know, refer to anyone in particular. Uh, I mean, it refers to someone in particular, but it's not no name. So uh, it's uh, anonymous in that respect. Uh, is that okay with you if I share what you sent me? Yes, please. And thank you from for the, asking. Uh, of course, of course. Uh, from an MSW, Rabbi Weinberg sent this to me earlier in the week. Oh, by the way, from one MS- of my kids. One of your kids, One yes. of the kids I had to save from an abusive family a very, very long time ago. Now I'm a mature woman. And an MSW. That's right. That's why she became an MSW. In other words, she was saved from an abusive situation in her own early life and came around to working with other children, uh, you know, in her life, in her mature life. So she continues to be of help. And that happens, of course. That's the whole archetype, as you know, Rabbi, of the wounded healer, the son or daughter who experiences some kind of deep emotional wound, whether it's from verbal abuse, physical, sexual, what have you, uh, starts to have such a deep relationship, in fact. I mean, there the little good you could say comes of it is the deep ability typically uh, if they aren't too wounded to experience a tremendous amount of empathy for the suffering of others and turn around in their later life to want to really be of service to others. So from an MSW who works in an Orthodox high school for girls, the teen she said, The teens I work with are so uninspired, bored, depressed, and detached. Maybe working with them is necessary because I have to help be part of a solution. They all text on Shabbos. Many go in cars on Shabbos. They're clueless about what Judaism is. Their families are miserable. Some have a lot of money, but are still so very miserable. Parents are not parenting them at all. What can we do? They are the walking dead, and it's the next generation. I see it only getting worse. Oh, that is just so humbling. It is so, so humbling. What what can you share with us about your own direct experience? My experience has been speaking with teachers and social workers who work in schools that they are increasingly frustrated because despite their extensive training, they they don't know how to handle the myriad of issues that land on their plate on a daily basis. And it's... Um, and, you know, it got worse. I don't know if I can take this on a slight tangent with your permission. Please, please. So I, I believe that you and I discussed the uh, job placement program 
that we're running. Yes. Yes. So right after the the economic downturn in 2008, we realized that we had to do help people who had been laid off from important positions. We had to help them find jobs. But as we were meeting with them, we realized that, first of all, we had to help them with their self-image. And then we had to help them with their family relationships because their children were used to having money to spend. The children were accustomed to being treated a little more carefully when their parents had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. The children... um, always saw their parents relaxed and now they saw their father home all day, every day, going out of his mind, their parents fighting and the the parents were yelling at their kids. It was destroying families. It was destroying relationships and it was destroying people's faith in God. And all these things go together and we realize yes. you can't just address the job. We had to provide group therapy, we had to provide family counseling, we had to provide rabbis who, with whom they could discuss their issues with God, their anger with God, and to give them a place to let off steam so that they wouldn't bring it home, to teach them how to create a happy, healthy environment at home. But when you have so many people and they're in economic distress, and the parents are distracted because they're just worried about paying their bills. Some of them are working two or three jobs each. They're not paying attention to their kids. And, and we know that kids who grow up without sufficient love become addicts. Mm-hmm. It's, it creates these, this addictive personality. You need something from other people. And that, that's it. These kids are lost. They have their parents are not sharing with them any joy of a relationship with God, any joy of living as a religious Jew. I mean, this is a community with which I deal. Their parents mm-hmm. are are not parenting, and so these kids are hurting. They become troublemakers in their parents' eyes, and then the parents overreact, and it just it's like a snowball. It just keeps on growing and growing. A lot of the students uh, um, to whom that MSW was referring in her email are mm-hmm. kids in those families, the families where one a parent lost a job. So a- everything goes together. You can't just address the abuse directly. You have to address family skills, relationship skills, parenting skills. You have to allow people to develop a real relationship with God instead of just being told what to believe. Yes. Yes. Now, is there in the Orthodox uh, community, well, that that's such a generalization in itself, so please, please pardon me for that, but is the idea of cultivating one's own real relationship with God, an inherent part of the teaching, or is it more externalized that a boy should follow certain protocols, i.e., 
wear a yarmulke, wear the tzitzis, do all of the outer uh, activities of observe Shabbos, or is he and she taught to have an inner experience of the greatness of life, of the beauty and magnificence and joy of life, and that that be connected to their relationship with God. Do you mean are they all being raised by Mitch Rabin? No. <laughs> or Simcha Weinberg? <laughs> that was sweet. Thank you, Rabbi. But no, uh, I you, I, I, I've been listening it, to your recordings. I think you do a better job. Judaism is about the internal relationship with God. I love Judaism. I love God. Yeah. I love my relationship with God. Yes. Quite frankly, people feel threatened by Western society and being exposed to everything that's going on in the world. They feel that it is a threat, and therefore what's necessary is this absolute control, which is primarily based on externals, unfortunately. But I think that mm-hmm. I think there are an increasing number of rabbis, leaders, teachers who are changing this. Yes. At yes. least I'd like to believe so. You know, there's an assumption, of course, Rabbi, that uh, that kids being raised in an Orthodox household or a strictly uh, Catholic household, that because of the uh, the scriptures, the, the underlying spiritual texts uh, that govern uh, behavior, both on the macro and the micro levels, uh, are such that, well, the assumption is that the children will be better behaved and better educated and experience more love in the household and more of a, a spiritual love as well as a, a human, personal love. And what I'm gathering from your research and observations over the course of many decades, as well as add to that your mother's entire life and legacy, that that really isn't the case. And I, I would really like to hear you you know, expound on this because there are assumptions. Let me just let everyone know uh, you are tuned in to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Uh, our website is abetterworld.tv. Please forward it to your friends, your family, and tonight I will say mishpucha because uh, we're dealing with uh, really, as you can tell, the real deep, salient subjects of our society, and we so need to uh, address these underlying issues because if we don't, who will? And we need to put them on the table, and that's what we do here at A Better World on all of our shows in one way or another, whether it's the personal healing that needs to take place in the environment, the issues of being programmed by our media and our technology or by our interesting governmental uh, agencies these days that have such deep reach 
into really into our own psyches. That's a whole other conversation. And um, we need to address these so we can reassert our own true sense of freedom and deal with issues of justice that are being violated everywhere. And our guest tonight is Rabbi Simcha Weinberg, who is doing such extraordinary work, carrying on, as he told us earlier, the uh, amazing work of his mother, who was just, you know, how do we say, a mention. She just, she uh, saw a problem, as he said, and she addressed it. And she did not pay much mind to the exteriors, to the appearance of things. She just went to the heart of the matter and addressed the injustice, addressed what was wrong in a family, regardless of the outer cloak, the outer clothing of it, or the political issues that it might stir up. So clearly, Rabbi, you are carrying on in this tradition which is laudable, and uh, just again, thank you for the good work you're doing. So let's turn back to what it is. I would like to really just look at this, this almost irony of those families that uh, have embraced orthodoxy, um, and that's regardless of religion, by the way, because you made a very important point at the beginning, which is that in those contexts, where there is the greatest suppression and repression, and not necessarily only sexual, you said, but of all sorts, i.e., freedom of speech. And that can then lead to serious verbal, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. When people are being suppressed, their creativity, their imagination, their, their life force is being suppressed. That's where we see the most problems, no matter what the transcending, the outer religion, if you will. Talk about that, if you would. Bring more uh, light, if you would, to that subject, because that seems at base the human issue. Um, I would like to respond with a little story, if I may. Oh, please. With your permission. Oh, yes. A, a very experienced, very wise rabbi therapist, and, and someone for whom I have great admiration, stood up and gave a lecture. Uh, it was entitled, The Castle is on Fire. That instead of saying to people, look how beautiful are our homes, our religious homes, and just saying, look how beautiful religion can be, we have to make sure that there are no fires burning in the castle. And he just went down a litany of issues that are occurring in the Orthodox community and he, with the refrain, there's a fire in the castle, there's a fire mm-hmm. in the castle, what are we going to do? And one of the rabbis, a very prominent rabbi, uh, got up to speak after him, after this person, and two or three rabbis later, and he said, well, the reason there may be problems in the castle because we, ha- we have not, not cut ourselves 
off sufficiently from secular influences. And therefore, all the problems he listed are a cry that we have to seclude ourselves even more, protect ourselves better from, the, from secular society. And when people walked out, all they remembered was the second rabbi. No one wanted to even consider the fact that the castle is on fire. They walked out of there inspired that we have to be even stronger in protecting our children from the evil influence of even someone like Mitch Rabin, who's saying (laughs) a better world. There is no better world without orthodoxy. Yes. And that's the best answer I could give you. People want absolute certainty. They want rules. They're scared. They don't know how to deal with issues. And they, you know, when when a kid is in pain and begins to rebel, and the parents just go to the rabbi, and the rabbis were saying, throw the kid out of the house. And those were the kids I, I first began working with, because those were the kids I would pick up off the street and bring them into my house and just adopt them, basically. But, you know, they go to the rabbis and say, what do we do? What do we do? And the rabbis don't know. And when we begin to tell them, just show your children you love them, you care about them, you're committed to them. It has nothing to do with how religious they are, how observant they are. You love them, you love them, you love them. Support them. Just give them unconditional love. The Mm. parents... Just they become hostile. No, tell us what to do. I am telling you what to do. If your kid wants mm-hmm. you to take them, take him to a movie. Go to a movie. No, 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 no. You can't go to a movie. <laughs> and so it just it, yeah, yeah. You but know, you I story. very much. I'm sorry. May I tell you a great story? Yeah, that was already a good one. Uh, There's a better one, I think. Okay. A Hasidic, very, very orthodox couple, had a a brilliant child, and at 13 or 14, he just rebelled against everything. And eventually, they accepted this approach. And the the approach is run by an incredibly righteous man. His name is Avi Fishoff. And he, he funds this from his own pocket. And he runs this program and he spends his life saving these kids. And he told the parents, you just do whatever you can to support the kid. So the kid wanted to go to a Metallica concert. Mm-hmm. And he wanted his parents to come. Now, you imagine a guy with a fur hat and a long coat and a big beard, <laughs> bushy beard, and the payas, and his mother wearing a wig and a kerchief on top of the wig and those little string things you see, from, you know, sticking out. Those are called the schitzel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they said, okay, Rabbi, you know, the rabbi said we should go. We'll go. Yeah, but you can't go looking like that. So they got jeans. <laughs> 
They go to the Metallica concert, and they go, and it is a pure expression of love for their kid. Yes. And they're sitting in the subway on the way back, and they said to their child, we thought we were religious, but until tonight, we didn't understand what it means to do something totally and absolutely out of love. This is the first time we understand what it can mean to live a life of love. Can you imagine there being anything better they could say to their child? He hugged them for the first time in four years. Mm. He hugged them. So beautiful. So beautiful. It tells so many stories embedded in the story, Rabbi. I mean, it would take a fair amount of deconstruction, but it's... it's, um, since we're being very Jewishy tonight, um, of course I was born Jewish, but I was raised as essentially what we call in New York a cultural Jew. Uh, my parents came from varying levels of uh, orthodoxy to to reform, and then I came out, and you know, looking as I do, and believing in what I do, and what I see see is that the outer uh, appearance of things does not accord with an inner life. And that story you just told tells a story that the fur hat and the yarmulke and the whole nine yards is not what it's about, but it's the inner life of the relationship of that parent to that child and the love that they are feeling in the depth of their heart and perhaps simultaneous to their love of God or they see it as one and the same if they're really elevated. Oh, my God. Whereas we say in the old language, Baruch Hashem. Here we have a blessing of a high order where uh, the outer cloaking has nothing to do with the deep. You know, as you know, uh, needless to say, I, I'm, I'm a child in the teaching of the difference between minhag and halakha, which when I was a student, which I was briefly in yeshiva at Or Sameach outside of uh, the old city in Jerusalem, and I learned some of these distinctions, which I find very useful, I found myself always way more interested in halacha, which to our audience means essentially, and please correct me if my understanding isn't correct, the principle, the cosmic principle, the spiritual principle that's alive in the teachings of Judaism and not the outer garb, if you will, that you wear your hair this way and you tilt your kerchief that way and you have to wear these colors and not those colors and on and on and on. And, of course, these are what are called the the local customs to get along with your neighbor because he and his wife decide to do such. And there are always really interesting stories about why things are the way they are. But at base, those stories aside, 
we have the true essence of the teaching that is really, in many ways, uh, described in that story of the parents going as people, instead of as religious Jews, if you will, to the concert with their child. So, well said. Am I making I sense in accordance with, with what you're sharing? Points. I would only disagree with two points. Okay. In my mind, I, must be doing pretty I, don't well. measure, I don't measure someone by how Jewish they are or how religious they are by the externals, but how committed they are to making this a better world. So I would say, uh, in my mind, you are the religious Jew. Okay. And the other thing, so about, if you recall, yeah. God's first words to Abraham were lech lecha, walk, journey for yourself. That Hebrew word, lech, journey, walk, is the root of halacha. The instruction, oh, nice. guidepost on how to use your life as a journey to explore, oh. to expand, to perfect this world or in your world to make, through your words, to make this a much better world. Yes. Oh, that is really illuminating. I very much appreciate both those disagreements with me. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm feeling better already. <laughs> I would like to also point out, you know, along the same line, uh, later on, the Baal Shem Tov, who definitely is a hero of mine, uh, who, in my understanding, just blew the lid off what became a rather encrusted form of Judaism. It just, it just, it was sort of dying, but still walking around. And his embodiment of joy and, you know, to say God realization, the deep spiritual life that he led and exemplified just opened up the space for people to become deinstitutionalized, if you will. Open up the gates and to feel all what you were saying of of life as a journey and to experience it that way directly and free yourself from the garb and the and all the accoutrement, if you will. And uh then as time goes on after that brilliant, joyous period, it begins to get encrusted again. But we see this as a human enterprise. This is certainly not something that shows up in Judaism alone. It shows up everywhere. It's the institutionalization of man because after the original liberation of happiness and joy and love of life and love of God, there is this um, kind of a, that's an expansion. Then there's an ensuing so often contraction of trying to hold on to a flame. You can't hold on to a flame, can you, Rabbi? No. Even though you saw me do it with the kids after Shabbat, I'd have done it. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, you're a miracle worker. What can I say? But I'd like to go back to um, I'd like to go back to the subject at hand, and I, I just could you try to bring some um, some uh, thought to the kind of the apparent irony that the 
places where there is such emphasis on doing good and living the right holy life is the place the place is where we tend to see the most suppression oppression repression and therefore the greatest abuse I think it's because we have lost the ability to believe that the real beginning of living a holy life is inside the heart is internal and rather than light the flame inside the belly of a child and just let the child go out and explore and we're we're trying to rebuild we're, we're haunted by what happened in, in the Holocaust. We're haunted by the loss of large communities. And so we're trying to rebuild numbers instead of rebuilding individuals. And mm. until In other words, quantity over quality. Yeah. And until we understand that God speaks to each one of us as an individual and mm. that the Bible is God's love letter, and it <laughs> speaks to each one of us individually. If only we can master the skill of how to read between yes. the lines, then uh, I have a great story about that. I don't know if I have enough time, but please, yes, you do. I will make sure you do. Okay, <laughs> I was about, about to give a sermon, and um, <clears throat> I think it was 1990 about Torah being a love letter. Mm -hmm. I opened up the sermon by saying to somebody, what was the most important document you ever read? So this one it was their visa to come to the United States. This one it was their degree. This one it was uh, work papers when they were in a concentration camp. Everyone had their own story. Uh This old man in his 80s, his name was Max, he shuffles up, he stands next to me on the pulpit, his hands shaking, and he says to me, Rabbi, Rabbi, I will show you, I will show you, but first my wife will show you too. And he points to his wife in the audience, and he says, Bella, come up, come up. And so <laughs> Bella, who never went anywhere without her purse, shuffles up to the pulpit. And he says, show the rabbi, show the rabbi. And she opens up the purse, and she takes out a yellowed piece of paper that clearly has been opened and closed thousands of times. Hmm. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a similarly aged paper, also red. And this man said, when we were on the train." Auschwitz, we thought we would never see each other again. So we wrote each other letters saying why we loved each other so much. This is the most important document I ever read. And they had really love letters in a cattle car. And they carried it with them the rest of their lives. I had no sermon to give after that. 
Yes. Because we could say it more beautifully. Sure. And sure. that, for me, is what God's teachings are. And the halacha, yes. the journey instructions, and yes. the customs, and they're all... They're all part of God's love letter to me. Mm-hmm. And I just want to learn, master how to read it myself and yes. help these kids and these families, each individual, learn how to hear God speaking to them in God's love letter. Mm. It's beautiful, Rabbi. It's very beautiful. It really is. It really is. Living a life, you brought up the subject of the, in your first story about this, of uh, the castle on fire, uh, that we ought to huddle closer together, that the problem or the enemy to the health and well-being of our community is the secular world. And... um, that is just seems like such a narrow interpretation, which I know is rampant among orthodoxy. It's just I've seen it myself directly. And uh, if I understood some of the teachings of Judaism, it's to be in a somewhat transcendent state wherein you would not be kind of Uh, subject to the conditions of the outer world that no matter what the outer world was it could be your own family but you were internally at some to some degree free from the harsh judgments and reactivity hostility aggression of others there was a part of you that was of us that was spiritually awake, alive, and free. And nothing could touch it. And that would give us some level of repose, whether we were dealing with upset in our own family or uh, an outer government that was being oppressive. And we could live a life of relative spiritual peace because of our uh, relationship, the peace we've made with the outer world. We know that conditions are difficult. We know that life isn't easy. And knowing that up front, you know, it's actually uh, part of the Buddhist perspective. You know, life is difficult. So now, new, we know that. And... um, with the acknowledgement of it, it's not a big surprise when it gets difficult. And I know that there are parallels, of course, in Jewish teaching. But you hear what I'm saying? It's, it's, it, to me, it is such an artificial kind of uh, separation between what we call secular and religious. And someone who is deeply religious should be very able to embrace all of God's creation, no matter what the name we attribute to it, like secular or Christian or the phrase goyim or anything of that sort. It's just, it's all part of God's creation and needs to be kind of uh, 
dealt with and addressed and appreciated for what it is. Does that yeah. make sense? And, oh, boy, does it. The, you know, the one custom, I'm sure you've seen these little boys walking around with long hair because of sure. many families have the custom of not cutting a boy's hair until he's three years old. Mm-hmm. Do you know the source of that custom? No. It's that the parents remember that they have to allow their child to become, express himself, to oh. wear his hair the way he wants to. And that's why the Mishnah teaches one of the obligations the parents have to every child is to teach the child how to swim. Because you know what happens when you take a newborn and throw it into water? It swims. Yeah, really. But why why do they why do we stop swimming? Because we acquire the fear of water. Ah. And the law is teach your child how to live without acquiring fear. Mm. To learn how to swim, make your own way. Mm. Mm. So important. Beautiful. The teachings are there. They're maybe not, you know, or or the the purpose, like the custom, what was behind it. You know, whether the hair is long or the hair is short, you know, uh, that means that the, the child has a choice. But how does, it, how does a child of one year old or two years old know what he, what the what the options are, you know. So yeah. symbolically, it's a nice idea, but they should well, apply it later when the, the child's about thirteen. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> it's to remind the parents. The parents are the ones who need to remember. That's right. That's right. That's right. No, I yeah. I very much appreciate. It. I I wish you would actually. You're such an uh, an awesome storyteller, and I really appreciate them. What last thoughts would you like our audience to know? I mean, I'm actually awed at the amount of uh, joy and levity you and I have been uh, experiencing in this rather deep dialogue about something as sobering and heart-piercing as abuse in the family and some of the abuse being perpetrated by rabbis against young, innocent boys and incest in the family. And by no means am I saying at all that this is unique in any way to Jewish orthodoxy because we know that's not so. We see this everywhere across our society, religious contexts and secular. And yet, even in the midst of this incredible conversation, Rabbi, you and I are seeing uh, a lighter side of what might be possible, solutions and healing for children, and your work exemplifies that. And I really want to get that point across, that while you are becoming a refuge and your work and your institutions and your organizations, a refuge for these children that so need you, and mothers who are so often abused in one way or another by confused fathers and husbands. Uh, 
there is light at the end of the tunnel. Is that a correct statement? The light at the end of the tunnel, Mitch, are exactly the seeds of light you are planting. Because absolutely everyone I've seen so far on your website, your interviews, your radio shows, are people who want to make this, who want to make this a better world, who want to plant seeds of light. And I think that's the solution. Yes, we have to deal with each specific problem, but we can preempt them by people, with people like you and listening to people who want to make this a world just filled with light and creativity, as we discussed in a private conversation, a world of color. And I think we'll be able to handle or preempt a lot of these problems. That's very beautiful, Rabbi. I I so appreciate it. And as someone who does do this work utilizing the media for this kind of communication healing, as a therapist I do similar with individual clients and couples and families and have been doing so for over 30 years. It was really that that gave me the impetus to do this where I could work in healing with people on a larger level, a larger scale, where I, yes, it's not custom-tailored, so to speak, the way uh, an individual, you know, consultation is, but, in fact, we are all so human, so very human, and the things that we have in common that we share far outweigh the things that we don't. And that's why I really consider uh, the media radio, television, and on as truly viable therapeutic modalities for helping people get to the next step of their own holiness and their own life. So it's with the greatest joy, Simcha Weinberg, that I have had in this past hour uh, sharing with you and listening to your stories and your wisdom and your commitment and your vision for a better world. I thank you from my depth for being on the show today. Thank you. And God should bless you with unlimited success. Thank you so much. Doing his work. We will talk soon, and we will carry on together. Okay. Thanks, Mitch. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. This was bye-bye now. This was a a very, very rich uh, dialogue. I hope you enjoyed that and felt it as deeply as I did. It's very true that when we connect on the level of the heart with the suffering of others, it opens us up so widely and it's so valuable for our own growth, our own depth, our own healing. Because if you really go to the depth of every teaching, The wisdom traditions, I like to call them, East and West, we see that we are one. We are one being. That, you could say, means that we are sharing on some interesting level one heart. And when one is touched in some way, all are touched. When one is healed, all are. Just as Maimonides said, you know, something like, if I heal one individual... I save one individual, it's saving an entire universe. Very powerful. 
So in that light, I just want to greatly thank uh, what has become my dear friend, Rabbi Simcha Weinberg, who is renowned, by the way, modest as he is, around the country and the world for his groundbreaking work in this domain, as I was saying earlier, uh, the courage, the bravery. Yes, I heard that he has inherited much of it from his mother, but uh, certainly he has also given it tremendous fuel in his own life, any number of different directions he could have taken. And he is doing this work that is just so difficult, calling, you could say, his own people out for healing and for discovery of the very difficult, unethical, improper, psychologically distorted actions that are taking place embedded inside these communities. And it's our community. It's not theirs over there. It may appear that way. I don't wear furry hats. But that has nothing to do with the true essence of a human being and reaching into each other's hearts and being present for each other sympathetically, empathetically. And that's what the rabbi truly exemplifies. I've seen him in action. I've attended a very special Shabbos day with him, with my dear friends who I want to acknowledge, Robin Temple and Michael Moore, who uh, introduced me to the rabbi and his lovely wife, and uh, to a series of rabbis who I met that one Shabbos day, and uh, all of whom hold the rabbi in high esteem. They know the work he does, how challenging it is, how unpopular it is. As he was saying, his mother had to put up bars on her windows on the property of the yeshiva. That's how deep this work runs, how deep this blood goes. And all the more reason we need collectively to help support this kind of work and to send many prayers and many blessings to all of those who are doing work of this ilk so that they may be empowered to continue on with it over time and, yeah, help to create a better world. Because if we don't clean up the family story, we're not going to clean up the larger human story. just ain't going to happen. So we need each other to tell the story and to keep telling it until we clean base. Let's be honest. People are not feeling loved. They are feeling a lack of self-worth. They have little self-esteem or no good self-image. And therefore, they resort to actions that are truly, truly hurtful and harmful to all. And we have to help all, whether they are rabbis or parents or all of us, to just step up our evolutionary development so we operate out of a higher part of our heart, a higher part of our mind, and uh, do the work we need to do to create a better world. I want to just thank you all for joining me and us today on this show. I very much deeply appreciate your attention and do 
spread the word, share this with others. Uh, we have shows every single week, and sometimes we have call-in shows where we ask you to call in and be part of our conversation. So on that note, I want to just invite you all to participate. Get the newsletter if you don't already get it at abetterworld.tv. And remember, I've got another website, uh, which is my work as a therapist and counselor and coach, www.mitchellrabin.com, mitchellrabin.com. And join us. Become part of a better world family. Love to have you. Forward it to your friends and uh, spread the good word. God bless. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.